Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Would you take to the seas in a 3D printed boat? You escape the normal design constraints that you would do if working with traditional materials. And the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson thinks science education must meet the age of disruption. The new syllabus says spend less time learning the stuff that science has discovered and spend more time doing what scientists do. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. But first, this week, Google confirmed that it had joined forces with America's second largest healthcare provider, Ascension. It will access tens of millions of patient records across more than 2,000 hospitals and clinics. The data includes what you'd expect from medicine, lab results, diagnoses and hospitalization records, patient histories including names and dates of birth. But the patients were not consulted and did not give their consent, and some people are worried by that. Maria Farrell is a technology writer and on the advisory board of the Open Rights Group, a British nonprofit working on issues like privacy. She joins me down the line. Maria, should we be worried by this? I'm worried by this. I'm worried because it is whole scale kind of sucking up a vast amount of really deeply personal information about people, information that can change the course of their lives, their ability to have health insurance. And it's being done without notice and without consent. It's a big problem. So tell me, what's the potential harm? So the possible harms here are really obvious, especially in the American context. Now, we know that when you have to pay for health insurance, the ability to know what you might suffer from in the future is really, really useful information for healthcare providers, for insurers, and it can be used to increase people's insurance, but also to deny insurance to people. So this kind of data in the wrong hands can really affect and even shorten people's lives. So that harm could happen regardless who is doing the processing. Why are people worried about Google? Is it because Google is a consumer internet company and people are just worried because it's big and they track you online with advertising? I think people have a number of concerns with Google in relation to health data. First of all, because Google has established huge monopolies in other parts of the economy and they're trying to use that monopoly power to have disproportionate amount of power in the health sector. But I think what's really worrying about this is the vague and shady way this has happened. We only know about this because there was a whistleblower. As far as Google is concerned, this is business as usual. This is perfectly normal to hoover up people's data, to analyze it and never tell them about it. Now, let me challenge you on this. I'm not certain we know this because of a whistleblower. We don't know about this because often a contractor operating between a hospital and a company is not something that just normally gets disclosed. So this has come into the public domain because somebody who we don't know dropped a video of some presentation materials with Ascension Healthcare and their deal with Google. We don't know about this because Google told us about it. We know about this because an employee blew the whistle. But I just wonder whether people are up in arms because the patients weren't consulted. But there again, I'm concerned. Why should it matter who does the data processing? 
So I've seen this happen before. When Google took, as it turned out, illegally got access to a huge amount of private patient health data in the UK, they used a fig leaf to explain why they would have it, a legal fig leaf, which was found to be illegal. Their excuse was, hey, we're taking this data because it is going to help us provide healthcare for you. And it turned out that the way they were going to do that was a tiny app to do it, something that a small number of people suffer from. And for those reasons, they were hoovering up 1.6 million people's data about all of their healthcare decision making. It's problematic because people don't have power or agency. You don't get to say, hey, you know what? I'm okay if the lab technician knows who I am and what they're testing me for. It's not okay if the world's biggest search engine knows who I am and what I'm being tested for. So I first want to point out that to use the term illegal is not really precise in terms of what happened in the UK. They were non-compliant with all of the technical standards that were required for the sharing of data and the harm that was done, if you will, the, the agent of impropriety was the NHS, not Google, or at it was a little bit of both. And what they did is as soon as they got the letter from the information commissioner's office, they just went into compliance. But they had taken all the steps that they thought were necessary, but clearly not all of them. And a simple letter was what remedied it. And when the information commissioner's office report came out, they didn't penalize Google in any way. They simply acknowledged that the incompliance was then become compliant. But I want to look at a bigger issue that you bring up, and that is what does good look like? What do you think a responsible company operating in this space, whether it's Google or any other, should do? The fundamental basics and the basics that the information commissioner's office in the UK did not enforce in this case and what's happening right now is notification of consent. You need to know who's using your data and you need to have a chance to say, actually, no, I don't want this to happen. There's lots of instances where companies don't want to disclose what they're doing until the time is right. This might have been a pilot project before it was actually formally announced. But I don't think there's anything nefarious. I think it's just people are concerned that because Google's big and we're tracked online with behavioral targeting, that we're just nervous. But I think that nervousness is a sign of our weakness to understand the value of data in medicine, not a sign they're doing anything wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's a strong case to be made that, you know, if Google were able to apply all of its machine learning and even some of its artificial intelligence to health data that they could indeed achieve great things. But it makes people rightly suspicious. So in the case of Ascension, it is for patient care. But let me just pose a hypothetical for you. What is a higher value for you, your life and your health or your privacy? I'm lucky enough to live in a country where because we have, to some extent, the rule of law and data protection, we don't have to choose between being alive and having privacy. We actually can have both of those things. I agree with you, but I think that we get both of those things when Google processes my data and saves my life. There's a lot of logical leaps in that sentence. I don't think Google is going to save your life. I think you're possibly putting a little bit too much faith in a technology company to perform medicine. When you look at the world and you look at privacy rights, what does best practice look like that we can all agree should happen if we want to both use data effectively and apply great algorithms in healthcare. I mean, the thing you and I share, Ken, is that we will both love to see this done really well because there is so much benefit we can get. So I think it involves trust and trust has to be built on fact. I think that, you know, the gold standard really is sharing your data with organizations that have your interests at heart, that aren't vague or obfuscating about what their motivations are, that are really upfront about, hey, we want to use algorithmic intelligence to do better predictive data. I mean, it all comes down to us being able to trust the companies that we're working with. And I think to do that, they need to be open and transparent. Maria, this has been an incredibly interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. 
And Maria is not the only one looking at this issue. Also doing so is Hal Hodson, the Economist Asia technology correspondent. Most people agree that this kind of digital healthcare using sort of more advanced technologies to process patient data and, you know, deliver better healthcare outcomes. Most people agree, like you and Maria do, that that's a good idea. The problem is that it's just very difficult, very messy and very expensive. And I think if we want the advantages of digital healthcare, sort of more efficient care, it's likely that the only entities with enough muscle to do it are going to be the tech giants like Google, who have both the tech skills and importantly, the cash to do these kinds of projects. And so the problem with this for me is that the tech companies brand is somewhat tarnished, like they don't have the best reputation with the public. I agree with Maria here. I think that there's a problem with lack of transparency at the beginning, because you actually mentioned the the DeepMind Royal Free thing as an example of something where there wasn't that big of a problem and the ICO just sent them a letter and then it was all good. But that's not quite accurate. If you read DeepMind's statement about the ICO's letter, they actually say that one of their biggest problems is that they were not transparent with patients up front about using their data. And even though you're right, the, in this case, it was the NHS that actually broke the law, it's on both parties to ensure transparency. And for me, the big problem with it is not even giving any notice to the patients. I agree with what you're saying about, you know, does it, do you have to know where your MRI scanner comes from? Probably not. But as sort of healthcare products get more and more complex, I think it's really important to give patients agency, like Marie has been saying. That kind of transparency is really important because if the big tech companies don't do this, I'm not sure who's going to do it. And if we want it to happen, if we want it to happen soon, then we need the big tech companies to be on their best behavior, to be as transparent as possible, to go the extra mile. I think that starting it right at the beginning and getting the public and the companies aligned in the work that they're doing is really important. And for me, transparency is the starting point for that. Thank you, Hal. On last week's Babbage podcast, we were joined by Gaia Vince, who spoke about her new book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. Now, in her book subtitle, Gaia lists four features that are crucial to understanding cultural evolution. So for the chance to win a signed copy, we asked, if she were to add a fifth thing to the title, what would it be? And many of you wrote in. Now, of course, we had a zillion people answering love and empathy and justice, and all those are nice virtues, but there are many of you, and they're a little bit blasé. One listener in Mumbai went to the heart of the matter and wrote sex. Well, we like that answer, but it's not the winner. One of our runners-up from Brisbane, Australia, said the missing element was violence. Another runner-up was a listener from London who wrote greed. But our winner comes from a listener in Amsterdam, Philip Lee. He said that the missing element was screw-ups. In his response, he wrote, We have been raised on a huge historical wave of creative mishaps, trying stuff until it works as the cornerstone of science, technology, and cookery. I'll bear that in mind the next time I burn my sushi. Congratulations, Phil. We'll send you a copy of Gaia's book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Next up, what do you take to the seas in a 3D printed boat? That is what the U.S. Army is planning to do. 3D printers have been around commercially since the early 1990s. Up until now, they've been used to print small items like prototype models or even dental crowns. But now the technique is being used to revolutionize construction on a much grander scale. Paul Markley is the Economist Innovation Editor. He joins me in the studio. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ken. So, Paul, first let's start with basics. How does 3D printing actually work? What it does is build things up additively. Now, normally when we make things, we make things subtractively, i.e. we cut bits out, we drill bits out, and we bash things together. But building up additively is making things layer upon layer upon layer. So if you like, a bit like your printer on your computer would print a layer of ink to put an image down. Well, imagine if it printed another layer on top of that and then another layer on top of that, and another layer on top of that, and so on, until a solid object emerges. And it can be as solid and strong as something that has been subtracted. It can be. It depends on there's many sorts of 3D printing around now. That could be plastics, various polymers, which is the most common form of 3D printing. But it could be metals, it could be ceramics. There's all sorts of ways it can be done now. So why has it taken so long to tackle some of the bigger construction projects? Well, normally a 3D printer is like a box, mostly now about the size of a large refrigerator. The things they make need to fit inside that box. So as the technology is evolving and people are getting more ways of doing it and coming up with more materials you can print, they're taking the mechanisms outside of the box, fitting them on big gantries or wires or hanks suspending them in the open air. And so you can print beyond that constraint. And you can print a patrol boat. Well, there's very many different ways it's being done, as there are indeed many different ways of 3D printing. Now, the University of Maine have done some very interesting work in this area, and I spoke to them about this story. I'm Habib Dagger. I'm the Executive Director of the Advanced Structures and Composite Center at the University of Maine. We were able to print a boat that was about 5,000 pounds and about 25 feet long in about 70 hours. We started on a Thursday night, and our engineers had estimated it would be done between 10 and 10.30 p.m. on a Sunday night, and we finished at 10.15 p.m. on a Sunday night. And uh, we never stopped printing for a second. It was all done all at once. It's a 25-foot-long marine patrol vessel. It has three hulls. If you're standing in front of the boat looking straight down at it, you'll see a big hull in the center and two smaller hulls on the side. So it's a tri-hull system. It was uh, designed by a company that's a partner with us called Navitech to give it high speed and low wave impact on the hull and on the occupants of the boat. It was all printed in one piece. When you print a single piece, you avoid the need to put joints in the structure, uh, which gives you a better ceiling against water intrusion, but also for strength, you're, uh, you have certain advantages. We have essentially an XYZ system. Basically, it is a gantry system that runs on two tracks, parallel tracks, 
And uh, currently it can run up to 60 feet, but it's designed for 100 feet. And uh, it has the ability to print parts up to 100 feet long, 22 feet wide, and up to 10 feet high by having an XYZ motion with a gantry. So the gantry moves in the X direction, in one direction. Uh, the print head moves up and down in a vertical direction, Y if you wish, and then left and right as well. We're able to print today at 150 pounds an hour, but we should be able to print at 500 pounds an hour within a year. Our major goal is being able to print with materials that have zero petroleum in them. That's one of the goals. That's not the only goal, of course. Uh, we are also working with all the other petroleum-based printers or resins, but we, our goal is to be able to prove that we can use bio-based resin systems that are 100% recyclable. So what's the implication of this? Because it sounds pretty extraordinary. Well, you could build these things wherever you needed them, when you needed them, not just patrol boats. You could build structures and housings and all sorts of other things because you'd have to fit an engine in them and the electronics and the various controls. I mean, they don't print those, but the basic structure you could just knock out in a couple of days. And if your commandos land on a deserted island and you don't know what they need to bring, they don't need to bring a boat. They just need to bring the printer. Just bring the printer, the computer to run the software, and plenty of raw material and you can print what you want. You wouldn't necessarily have to print a boat. You could print a hut to live in while you're waiting for it to be printed. Sounds pretty good. I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is this like 10 times more today than traditionally manufactured boats of the same length? Or is this like half the cost? There is a huge speed advantage in making things faster for the customer. And that's the big advantage of 3D printing, is that if you can make something in 72 hours that would have took, say, six months, you can bring out to market something faster, something more bespoke, something more special, because your lead time to the market is quicker. So that saves you money because you're not having to build versions which are no longer required. So I understand the benefits. What are the limitations of this method? Well, just how big you could build that structure. Say if you wanted to print something in concrete, which you can do, well, you could print a building, but just how big could you build the scaffolding? I mean, you know, scaffolding as big as a skyscraper with a giant 3D printer going up, might, that might be a bit tricky. So probably better to build that in sections a bit at a time in a factory, perhaps, where you could have better control over the size and the environmental conditions and the precision and then build those sections up. Okay, so will we soon see 3D printed construction everywhere in our skylines and our spaceships? I don't think so, because, you know, old technologies always have good advantages. But like most new technologies, it has its pros and it has its cons. What it's very good at is building one-offs, different things, because economy of scale doesn't matter with the 3D printer. The cost of making one thing or many things is the same. There's a certain beauty and style coming out of 3D printed things in metal or plastics because you escape the normal design constraints that you would do if working with traditional materials. Because often you design things to be built from multiple parts that have to be fitted together, welded together, bolted together, screwed together. Well, when you build things additively, you build it from the ground up, you don't have those constraints. And so what happens is when you optimize the software that designs how you're going to 3D print something, you come out with shapes that nature has spent billions of years evolving. So some of these things look very natural and very fluid and very interesting. Paul, that's incredible. Thank you so much. That's a pleasure, Ken. And finally, 
The astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson is a master of science communication, and he's a hero of mine, too. He's been the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York for the last 25 years, and he's been the face of several popular television shows on science like Cosmos. He joined me in the studio to talk about his new book, Letters from an Astrophysicist. And I started by asking him why he's dedicated his career to communicating science to ordinary laypeople. I think the articulation of that was best uh, given to us by Carl Sagan, where we have people in free societies, you pay taxes, and tax money goes to pay for research, government-sponsored research through science agencies. Uh, And some of that research is quite visible. For example, in the United States, we have NASA. All right. So every dollar spent on NASA is probably 100 times more visible than dollars spent in any other way. And so here you are, a taxpayer. Shouldn't you know how your money's being spent and why and what's behind it, who the people are who are coming up with the ideas about how to spend it? So in an informed democracy, you want these conduits between the taxpayer and what's happening on the other side of it so that people can participate in how that money gets spent. And only then can you claim to have an informed democracy. So using the term informed democracy and me looking out the door at the real world, I don't see the two things aligning perfectly. And when you think about – Yeah, it's a problem. It is a serious problem. Yeah. Think about the world that you began your career in in the 1980s and the world we have today. There's a huge disconnect. and You can only go online and see Flat Earth Society videos. What should scientists and science communicators like yourself do about this? Yeah, I don't know if there's an easy solution after the fact. But before the fact, it means revamping the educational system because here's what's not taught. We are not taught what science is and how and why it works. What science is and how and why it works is someone does an experiment. I don't care your expertise. They'll get a result. If it's an extraordinary result, I'm another scientist. I say, you know, that's kind of extraordinary. I don't even believe it. Let me try to do another experiment and then another and another. And a suite of experiments get conducted and observations get made. And when there is convergence on what the result is, you have a newly established scientific truth. Now, I love this, but what does that practically mean? How do we reform science education? Yeah, somebody's got to go into the classroom and, you know, swap out the syllabus. And And what does the new syllabus say? The new syllabus says spend less time learning the stuff that science has discovered and calling it science and spend more time doing what scientists do or learning what scientists do. We're in a laboratory. We're asking questions. We're trying to come up with a new apparatus to make a measurement of something we've never measured before. What is measurement? How many times do you have to measure something before you can trust what your result is? Yeah, I wonder if to reframe science, I think Mm -hmm. we need to probably shuck the idea that it comes up with answers and instead say it poses questions and is constantly self-critical and reinterpret all of science as one person criticizing and overturning the ideas of someone else. It's not all about overturning. It's about criticizing and getting the same answer that's more important, okay, of of a feature of science because we get overturned ideas all the time. It's when an idea does not get overturned that started out controversial and your enemies do an experiment and they get the same result you do or approximately the same result. This builds. Scientists hardly ever agree on the moving frontier but when we do agree, oh my gosh, you better sit up straight and take notice. 
I agree. So hence you've written a book in which you give us the letters. <laughs> yeah. In this book, Letters from an Astrophysicist, it's a collection of inquiries from people who have all of these ideas. There's, a, there's someone who's asking about Bigfoot, someone inquiring about a flat earth, someone inquiring about their religion and how does their religion reconcile with the moving frontier of scientific discovery. It's, it's all in there. So it's, it's a sampling of what people are actually thinking about out there. People had some kind of angst in their lives, some decision point, and I would get these letters. So many of them are personal. Uh, there's a woman raising a 10-year-old child who is on the autism spectrum, and he comes home from Hebrew school, and he says he doesn't believe in God. And he thinks the Bible stories can't be true. And she asked why, and he said it's because he saw cosmos. <laughs> Exactly. So I don't know if I should keep reading the letter after that, but she was quite open to asking questions. Can, can science and God coexist? Is there some middle ground? She respects her 10-year-old son, and she doesn't want him to believe something that's not true. And so, you replied. So I, yeah, I, I replied. But that one took me more than a year. I said all these moving parts. You got an autistic kid, a 10-year-old. I have kids, but they're not 10, and they're not autistic, and they're not Jewish, and I'm not Jewish, and I'm not female, and she's a mother, and she there's all of this. So, But I finally came back, and I want to stand where they're standing. And that's the contract, the unwritten contract between a questioner and a reply. My replies intersect their receptors for an answer. Otherwise, they might just go read a wiki page. So we're on the cusp of a new space revolution with privatized space flight and even the ideas of going to Mars and having a settlement there. When are you going to go travel to Mars? I, I said this to his face. I said to Elon Musk, I'm gonna, I'll get on your spaceship to Mars after your mother takes this trip and she comes back safely. <laughs> if she walks off the ship alive, then I'll take the trip. And he said? And he said, okay. He said he wouldn't take the first trip either. <laughs> he was very candid about it. The first time out, it's always dangerous. If you look at the history of airplanes, uh, airplanes were very dangerous in the early days. But you had adventurous people. I mean, it's the spirit of what it is to be human. Not everyone who is human feels this way, but there's enough of us who feel this way that they will take risks, even risking their lives, to do something that no one has done before. Now, do you embrace this privatization of space? Of course. That should have been happening 50 years ago. The difference is I don't see privatization of space as leading a frontier. Because if you lead such a frontier, it's expensive, it's dangerous. There's not, that's a very short venture capitalist meeting. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, how dangerous? Well, people might die. What's the return on I don't know. What will it cost? Possibly a trillion dollars. Then that's the end of the meeting. So historically, uh, governments have done big, expensive, hairy, audacious projects, usually for hegemonistic motives or some other geopolitical reason. And then you learn, here's the shortest route or the trade winds help you or there's food here but not there. Once they do that, you come back, you, you look at the notes, then the Dutch East India Trading Company kicks in. Exactly. And they run the business and they have the efficiencies that a government might not have and they'll get to do it quickly or, or cheaply. Final question. Do space aliens exist and do human beings have the capacity to know if they exist? Oh, uh, there's no one who has studied the problem of space aliens that is in denial of their existence in the universe. If you look at uh, – if, if they're anything remotely resembling life on Earth, they would be carbon-based. There's carbon everywhere in the universe. They would evolve from organic molecules to self-replicating life within a relatively short amount of time as what happened here on Earth. And 
You need time to do that, to evolve from something more ambitious than a microorganism into full-up macroscopic creatures. Well, Earth did that. Why? There's no reason to think that this is not a common phenomenon in the universe given the age of the universe. So anyone who studied the problem fully embraces that the universe could be teeming with aliens. Is it what we call intelligent aliens or because microbes on another planet are, is alien life? To the biologist, they probably don't even care. But uh, apart from that, who are we to even decide that we are intelligence looking for intelligence? Who defined our own intelligence level? Well, we did. <laughs> so compared to a, a genuine space alien, would they view us as intelligent? That's, no one's asking that question. But I think it's one that we should ask because for all we know, there's a supremely intelligent species that has created Earth for us and we are their terrarium. <laughs> Neil, thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, what we'd love you to do is to sign. We have two of your books. I, I noticed that. And we would love you to sign your name, but you don't have to sign it to anyone. And the reason why is that we are going to ask a question to our Babbage listeners and they are going to reply. And the lucky winner, there'll be two of them, will be able to get a copy of the book. So I've got a question. Go for it. You're the first human to ever have an encounter with an alien. And by stroke of luck, the alien knows English <laughs> or knows, knows your native language. What's the first question you would ask it? To win, send your answer to radio at economist.com, where our team will look at it and choose the very best one. You can learn more about science and technology by reading the upcoming issue of The Economist in the Science and Technology section. And to subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's all for this edition of Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier. And in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... Whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.